This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Eric. And I'm Luke. And welcome yeah. everyone to here, wherever yeah. here yeah. is. We right are here. here. We yep. are talking about science fiction. Mm-hmm. And the Food. topic tonight is food. Science fiction which is, and food. Science fiction and food. Which is great. Just a, a quick introduction to my first few minutes of this podcast is that I've just got off a plane and just got home from a trip from, well, I've just flown back from Barbados via New York, via London, back to Berlin, and I haven't eaten anything for about 12 hours, so I'm just eating some food as we start recording. So I'll just be over here eating some cereal while these guys talk <laughs> for a few minutes. <laughs> so, uh, Eric, this was your, your uh, I don't want to say baby, but this was your your... Topic you you suggested science fiction and food and I I thought that was a rather odd topic and everybody else seemed to think it was wonderful. <laughs> well, we outvote you, Jesse. Uh, <laughs> but uh, how how does this even come to mind? Like I I think science fiction and I don't know, you know, dining customs would be, be come before science fiction and food in the in the topics of uh, you know science fiction. Well. It seems to me, uh, first of all, that science fiction has deep roots in fairy tale and fantasy. Right. Where, where we know that food is absolutely central. Uh, I'll get back to that if you like. Mm-hmm. Second, we know that food is absolutely essential both to survival and to social relations among human beings. <laughs> and so... If science fiction is going to concern itself with how we live and how we live together, you're going to have to find food in there as well. Third, we know in our modern global era, welcome back to here, Luke, uh, (laughs) that one of the things that we do is trade cultures and come to know the alien by food sharing and testing. And so, again, one would suppose that it would be common in science fiction, which is the domain in which we meet the alien most frequently. So, you ask how it comes to mind? That's how it came to mind. That, that makes sense. Uh, um, maybe maybe um, because uh, I live in Vancouver, and, and people come here to me, and they say, what's a Canadian restaurant? And I said, oh, there's one, and I point across the street to the Korean restaurant, and then they... <laughs> They they say to me, oh no no Canadian restaurant Jesse, Jesse. and I say um, uh, International House of Pancakes. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure what you mean, right? There isn't like a Canadian restaurant. There's just thousands of different kinds of restaurants. So Indeed. maybe it's like I'm so surrounded by the 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 many different kinds. It's, it's like I can't see the forest. What are you talking about? And I'm, well, all, I think, all I see are trees. <laughs> I think if one day you walked down the street and saw Paula's Pemmican Palace, you might think. By golly, that is a Canadian restaurant because I don't. Uh, think- that, that, that's more like the Saskatchewan or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I'm I'm like a Coquitlam, a Vancouver, Vancouver area, so it's not as. Uh- so the Quackyoodle would never have pemmican, huh? Uh, Quackyoodle. Yeah, they're from that area. I know. Well, pemmicans, pemmicans, like for um, voyageurs. That's like French Canadian. That's like uh, yes, but it's a native. It's a it's a North American Indian. 
Yeah, pemmican is made was invented by North American Indians. Yeah, but that, that's that's like saying it's invented by Asians. There's like Asia's huge, Canada's right. huge. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I, I, no, I've never had pemmican. I've heard about it. I've read about it. <laughs> if there was a pemmican restaurant, I would be interested. But I see what you mean about forest and trees, and that's that's a real problem. Yeah, that's no, a- I like you. You even said just just there. You said, what was it? Um, Food is essential or necessary for social relationships, and I was like, yeah, that actually probably is true. What did you yeah, I've just been with with all the science fiction, but because we mentioned this, it was when we did the um, Yellow Peril um, mm. podcast that we were going, okay, what can be the next topic that we take on, sort of as a bit broader topic? And he said food, so I've been like thinking about thinking about food in quite a few of the uh, uh, books that I've been reading, and it is quite a big issue in. A surprisingly high number of science fiction books um, that I've been reading over over the past what six months or something since we did the Yellow Peril podcast. So uh, yeah, it definitely does stand out. Hmm. Well, l- let me give you a, a good foundational example. Mm-hmm. When Victor confronts his monster in Frankenstein, and the monster argues that if given a bride, so that he can have a sense of community, he will leave the zones in which Homo sapiens lives, and there will be no competition because he, and presumably his bride and their offspring, are hardier than their creators and are able to live on acorns and bark. In fact, what we discover is that this noble savage, who so far at that point in the novel has been uncorrupted by civilization, is telling his creator... I'm a vegetarian, and so you don't have to worry about me. I'm not going to compete with you for food sources. We will be somewhere else. But Victor, of course, decides that since they are so superior, this race of ugly vegetarians can't be allowed to, to uh, propagate, and he destroys the bride halfway through making her. But I think that vegetarian argument uh, for peacefulness and separation from fundamental ordinary, statistically normal homo sapiens, I think that's a key notion that, that Mary Shelley has put into the novel. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Well, you know, it, it really does go back. Remember that the subtitle of that, the, uh, the epigraph of that is from uh, Paradise Lost, that novel. And it's Adam saying to God, you know, did I ask you to make me man? He's sort of complaining about the fact that he's been created with um, a freedom of will that allows him to fall from grace. Um, and so Paradise Lost, in fact, runs all through that novel. If you take a look at the Bible, uh, the first thing that God does, the only thing that God does to constrain humanity is to tell them, don't eat this. Hmm. And, and then they eat it. Um, so they get to eat vegetable material. And then the second thing that happens is that Abel is killed by Cain because while Cain was a farmer raising cereal, good morning, Luke, uh, (laughs) Abel... That's okay, I'm I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Abel was a shepherd, and he made a sacrifice, a burnt offering to God and found respect in God's eyes, according to the language of the King James Bible. And so Cain kills Abel uh, 
out of jealousy that God has actually liked the killing of animals. And now that becomes possible. And so he wanders forever because God protects him. He puts that sign on him and no one will otherwise, who otherwise would have killed him will kill him. And then how do we deal with this, this permanently sinful condition of humanity? God sends his only begotten son, according to the Christian story, and Jesus says, this is my body, eat of it. This is my blood, mm. drink of it. Which, and can I just bring this, uh, just at this point, bring in a, a book that I just read a while ago called Eiffelheim. Have you read Eiffelheim? It's um, alien um, accidental crash landing into medieval Germany. And that is a big part of that book. And one of my favorite parts of the book where they managed to, uh, mild spoilers, twist around the, uh, you know, the eating, uh, you know, the breaking of the bread and the, you know, the eating of the sacraments and things like that. And, uh, and a very touching part and a very clever part of the book there as well. I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, do you know, yeah. yeah. I, do you know, I know that spoiler because I listened to Scott's review <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> on uh, on a good story is hard to find podcast. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, as it, as you, whoop, go ahead. No, come on. Oh, I was go. just going to say, well, as you talk about that, I'm reminded of uh, 2001, where um, the thing that uh, the monolith seemed to teach the um, natives was, hey, here's another food source. Yep. Um, you know, if you if you kill these animals, now you've got uh, another food source. And anyway, I was reminded of that as you were talking about the Bible. Made that connection. Well, and the the general conclusion that I I reach, Scott, in taking a look at these three stages of first eating vegetables, then eating meat, then eating cannibals, then becoming cannibals, is that every time you have a food prohibition. It really is an attempt of some powerful individual or institution to prevent access to that power by the next generation. And every time that prohibition is transgressed, in fact, the transgressor does suffer but becomes more powerful. And that's what I think typically happens in science fiction. I haven't read Eiffelheim, so you can tell me whether or not that prediction works out there, whether or not eating what you're not supposed to eat actually winds up strengthening you. Mm. Well, it, it doesn't in – well, it kind of does in that case, but it's a, it's a different thing. I'll just – might as well spoil the book yeah. a little bit for them. Yeah. The idea being that these, um, these uh, aliens crash land on Earth and they've lost you know, the power in their spaceship and things like that. But there's only so many of them and there's this one certain protein that they can't um, get from Earth – and they can't synthesize it in any way. And it turns out that the only way to, um, to, for them to actually get this protein and to survive is by when one of them dies is to eat his body. And in the end, the, the, one of the aliens becomes a Christian and really takes on the, this is, this is uh, my body broken for you and the whole sacrifice of Jesus of saving others. And by, <laughs> by, uh, by, uh, starving himself and killing himself, and then his his um, the proteins of his body are broken up, and that's what happens uh, throughout the book. And I th- found it very, very touching and, and very uh, an impressive um, look at the sort of the idea of cannibalism and uh, and the cannibalism in the Bible in, in that way as well. Uh, yeah. Sounds and, wonderful. Oh, it's really great. See, it's a pity really... about the rest of the book, but. <laughs> well. that, but that really does that does support precisely the thesis I'm yeah. I'm suggesting to you that yeah. that suicide, which is presumably 
unethical and cannibalism, which is unethical, both become validated. Uh, yeah, the, within the Bible as well. I mean, in the story you just told. Mm. The fellow kills uh, yes, himself. But it, yes, but it, it, they, the aliens, through the priest that they're talking about, Dieter, his name is, and um, through his <laughs> t- teaching, there, teaching the, um, the, the ways of Christianity and the story of Jesus, they, that's where they get the idea for to, to do it in the first place. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting. Mm. Well, uh, it reminds me of the, the example I always use with my students when I'm talking about, uh, you know, how do you how do you determine when someone is really crazy, right? Versus versus uh, you know just odd, right? So they they hold beliefs that uh, are funda- fundamentally at odds with reality. For example, breatharianism, you know, the idea that you can only breathe air and or not take any food and water, and this will allow you to transcend your body and become very spiritual, etc. Uh, Wikipedia says it's Inedia, I-N-E-D-I-A. It's Latin for fasting. I've not heard of that. But breatharianism is the idea that you just need either water or no nothing, just sunlight and air to live. And, and the trips to Burger King. <laughs> no, oh, and secret secret chocolate bars hidden in your in your mm. robes, you know, um, because uh, it's a. It's a, a fascinating, a fascinatingly weird idea, but it's related to this idea of purity. And you know, people who, if if you uh, read or have seen the movie Scott Pilgrim, the Scott Pilgrim comics have uh, are, are exactly parallel the movie. But the character in uh, one of the characters he fights is a vegan, and he he gets superpowers from being a vegan. And he says anybody can be vegetarian, but to go Holy vegan, that gives you superpowers. Right? <laughs> um, and so he's, he can punch much harder than anyone else. He, he was able to punch so hard he could punch the highlights out of somebody's hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the idea there is that breatharianism is just, you know, oh, yeah, you're vegan? Wow, that's holy. But check me out. I don't need anything. What? Well, you Nothing. know, think, think of the, the words that we use. If, if God visits you, you are inspired. Mm. Right? And spiros is, is breath in Greek. That's right. So the spirit has filled you. The air has filled you. you and that is, it, yeah. that's spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the alternative to that is the material, right? The, the meat that we fall into, as it says in Neuromancer. So the more you refine your eating to get further and further from animal meat, um, the, the more you are the spirit and the less the the body which although i hope all of us have ways of enjoying our bodies the fact is that when we confront mortality which is what the communion is about after all uh, when we confront mortality we would like to believe that the undeniable fact of the death of the meat does not actually mean the death of us so we have a stake you'll forgive the pun i hope uh, <laughs> It's seeing a distinction between the body and the spirit. And the one that we want to move toward is the spirit. It's the air. It's the breathitarianism. Um, And it seems to me that it goes as far back as any religion that I know of. Hmm. You wrote a whole book on this subject. What's the the title of this? Or no, you didn't write a whole book. You edited a whole book. I edited a book. It's, It's called Foods of the Gods. Foods of the Gods. Okay, and so uh, how did how did that come to be? Well, uh, a bunch of 
a bunch of us realized the uh, the centrality of of food in so many places. But as Luke just said, um, it's only when you start looking for it that it you realize quite how prominent it is. Um, so there was a period of twenty or so years uh, when there was an annual Eaton conference. That's E A T O N at the University of California Riverside, and. Uh, I was a speaker at the first of those and was a co-organizer of all of the uh, subsequent ones um, up until comparatively recently. Um, so they've been going since the 70s. And we would pick a theme and try to see if people bit. <laughs> and uh, son of a gun, they did. So we selected from among the best of the essays, uh, best of the talks that were given at the conference on food, and then gave people advice about revising those, and then added a couple of others, and uh, voila, uh, bon appetit. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it, how you can use food language for pretty much anything? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. that's great. <clears throat> I, I often, uh, that's one of the when I'm teaching metaphor, I always I say, okay, in your review, you have to you have to pick a metaphor, either one or two metaphors, and go go with it. So they, I say, one of the ones I like is uh, it, it, this book was really tasty. You know, I could eat uh -huh. it page after page, uh, and then it's very easy to follow all the metaphors. They all know all the food metaphors, right? And have you? Do you guys? There's a paragraph in uh, the Futurological Congress. Um. Do you guys know that book by Lem? No. No, no I don't. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. This, I'm going to have to, when someone else is talking, I'm going to have to go and grab this from my shelf. This is set, this particular part is set in a future in which books are no longer read. They are only eaten. <laughs> and this fellow decides that he wants to, to learn a lot and goes and finds well, it's not exactly a library. It's more a delicatessen. And in this delicatessen, he's able to get whatever he would like. But um, this, this particular paragraph I, I love, and I, I will. I've, I've grabbed it now while we're talking. I'll, I'll read this to you mm -hmm. or start it. Um, I finally learned how to come into possession of an encyclopedia. I already own one now, the whole thing contained in three glass vials. Bought them in a science psychedeli. Books are no longer read but eaten. Not made of paper, but of some informational substance, fully digestible, sugar-coated. I also did a little browsing in a Psychem supermarket. Self-service. Arranged on the shelves are beautifully packaged, low-calorie opinionates, Gullabloons, <laughs> credibility beans, abstract extract in antique gallon jugs, and iffies, argumunchies, puritans, and disecstasy chips. A pity I don't have an interpreter. Psychedelic must be from psychedelicatessen, and the Theoapotheteria on 6th Avenue has to be a theological apothecary cafeteria, judging from the items on display. Aisles and aisles of absolventina, theopathine, genuflix, Orisol, <laughs> an enormous place, organ music in the background while you shop. All the faiths are represented, too. There's Christendine and Anti-Christendine, Ormazol, Araminol, Anabaptaban, 
methadone, Bramax, Superlapsarian suppositories, and Zoraspix, Quaker oats, yogurt, Mishnamil, and apocryphal dip. He goes on and eventually comes to talking about others, things such as Freudos, Morbidine, Quandaril, and the most recent of the Iamides, heavily advertised Authentium. It creates synthetic recollections of things that never happened. A few grams of dantine, for instance, and a man goes deep in goes around with the deep conviction that he has written the Divine Comedy. <laughs> um, so eating is everything. It's wow. it's religion. It's belief. It's knowledge. It's everything at this particular point in the Futurological Congress. <laughs> that's amazing. Now he didn't. He doesn't write in English, right? Or he didn't. No, he writes in Polish. Yeah, but it so turns that's a remarkable. He's deceased. Yeah. It is amazing. Um, well, the fellow who who did this, Michael Candell, who did the translation, is in fact an award winning translator. But it also turns out that Lem, from childhood on, uh, was reading in English, French, um, German, uh, and Russian, as well as Polish. And most of those terms, you will realize, actually come from Greek or Roman roots. Mm -hmm. So they turn out to be puns that translate, certainly in Michael Kandel's hands, quite well. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. You know, I think there's so much of this eating stuff in science fiction. You know, it's, yeah. uh, in the future, we'll just have these food pills. Yeah. Oh, you let's know? go back. Let's go back. Let's go back for, to some more early science fiction because we talked. We touched on uh, Frankenstein. How about with uh, one? One of my favorite early um, science fictions is, of course, War of the Worlds. And there we have um, not eating, but one of the most alien things about the aliens themselves is the is the way that they eat, and they don't eat humans. They actually just inject the blood, and it says that long ago they. Um, they don't no longer need they evolved away from stomachs or something like that so they don't even need stomachs anymore they just inject the the life of humans directly into the into the bloodstream which uh, i always find fascinating about that um never yeah, I, never quite sure about the biology behind it no uh, that, that almost makes there. sense i mean you don't need a stomach if you've got, got blood full of uh sugars right well, I mm, yeah. But Look, you need, it, you need to you need to synthesize it in some way to get the energy out of it, and I don't think just swapping like putting more like better blood into your. Well, if you had a if you had a, a species with two two um, two parts, right? They they have, share the same blood, and and they and one of them is the the eater, and one of them is the the thinker, right? You could take the the blood from the eater and put it in the thinker. Um, and just kill yeah. the think, uh, kill the eater, and get a new eater next week. Or in, yeah, yeah, but you know, one of one of the main purposes of the blood is to move oxygen around. It's not all about sustenance. It's not all about the uh, the energy that's needed. It, that doesn't travel in the blood as much as oxygen does, which is the more important part. True, but you would have blood in both. It's just you know yeah. you, you you need lungs. Not you don't need a digestive system. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, yeah. think of think of people in hospitals, right? They don't need to eat; they can get all their sustenance oh, from just bed. through a drip. Yeah, but yeah. through the, a drip or whatever or that kind of thing is a bit different from what's presented within the within the War of the Worlds as we see it, anyway. So, uh, well, in the um, War of the Worlds, the Martians actually put proboscis into human beings. I mean, that you know, when the narrator says, "And I have seen them eat." Yes, we understand that he's talking about them being vampires. Yeah, and it's, it's just the blood straight in. Exactly. 
Well, it could be could be that they're you know they they don't put it in their own veins. They're putting it in. No, but it says it actually says that that when they it, later on he's talking. Well, he's talking about what happens later on. They actually look at the bodies of the aliens. They don't have stomachs. They don't yeah. have digestive systems. He says they they've evolved away from that now, and they just take other people's bloods directly into their own. It's not vampirism because vampires are, are seen to sort of drink blood, and then it, the blood is in the stomach, and then it gets digested and then that is later you know turned into blood or whatever happens you know that way but specifically in war of the world it says they bypass the the digestion stage and just takes the blood straight into the bloodstream we, we are bypassing our digestion stage with all our cooking right where we haven't bypassed it but we're working on it so that idea what, what you were saying with pills you know you just take the pill and you're done right you don't need yeah, I've, I've always been fascinated you know it seems to be you know, the natural evolution of food in science fiction is that we eat less and we have pills and things. But that seems to me to be a step backwards because, <laughs> you know, food is enjoyable. Um, you know, it seems to me that the evolution should be that this stuff that we eat is not going to kill us anymore. <laughs> I know? I always think that in in um, a lot of these uh, books where it becomes dystopian, I can understand that people just, you know, they can't afford to cook, they can't afford to prepare food because they're just working too much or whatever it is. And then I can understand people having food pills, but I never understand it where, like, everyone's getting along well and everyone's fine and there's lots of money and there's lots of time because I know that the more money that I have the better i eat the more time i spend thinking about food and the more i want the food to be <laughs> not pill form uh, but mm. then you look at sort of like people when the students it's sort of like there's a reason why it's all noodles and rice and cheap stuff almost food as pills but not pills but you know like about as close to it as you can possibly get when you're a student and i and i always wonder about the the disconnect there that as um yeah, as the uh, as as one uh, as sort of like happiness, wealth, and everything goes in one direction. Sometimes they go, oh, future food, we'll just inject it into us. We won't have to bother eating. And I'm like, maybe oh. it's just it came from the astronauts. You know, Tang Tang mm, is, right. is the astronauts' food. I, I don't know if astronauts ever had Tang in outer space. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. Has, has everyone seen Firefly? Um, but, yeah. but you guys remember that? I mean, they they would eat bricks and they would have protein in their in their kitchens, they were always talking about, hey, this is made out of the same, this cake is made out of the same stuff we just ate for dinner. You know, it's all just protein. But then um, Shepard Book buys his way onto the ship with a strawberry. And, um, you know, I guess that's talking about scarcity and things, but still, like Luke was saying, I mean, they want to eat. <laughs> but in Firefly, they just can't. They, they, the, uh... But I don't. But I uh, I can't see that as self-consistent world because at mm -hmm. one point they take a herd of cattle in their spaceship That's and right. fly it around. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. so. Why don't you uh, just they have deliver, a taboo against cattle? So <laughs> well, I, I think I think what you're you're pointing to here reflects uh, a tension between the content of future pointed science fiction and the rhetoric and aesthetics of today read science fiction. That is, many things that we find in science fiction are not so much predictions of the future as artistic markers of the future. Mm -hmm. right? So the, the idea of going around in jetpacks, for instance, which putting aside their toasted tush um, has always struck people as wonderful, um, isn't 
when you think about it, a very good idea, right? I mean, think of air traffic control with a 9 million people trying to go to work in New York City. Um, on the other hand, as a sign of the future, what it suggests is freedom, mobility. Um, you can do what you want, when you want, go where you want, and that represents a liberation for the individual. Well, food, as enjoyable as it may be, also, as you say, ties us to our bodies and ties us when we are incapable of having enough for the poor. It is something that weighs on us all the time. And so having readily available capsule food is, again, a liberation for the individual. It seems to me that the aesthetic sign there, the artistic notion that in the future we will all be free of our bodies runs against the current desire to enjoy our bodies. And so, yes, if we had a real utopia, for us at least, we wouldn't do it. But the people 200 years from now aren't going to be reading those books and saying, ah, yes, thank goodness they figured out the blueprint. They're going to be mm -hmm. saying, this is an historical document that represents an artistic vision 200 years ago. Yeah, and also it's a good way to get people out of a fix. In, in Lord of the Rings, what's the bread that they have? Which they, Lembas. Uh, yeah, Lembas bread. And, uh, or Lembas cake. No, what is it? Bread or cake? I can't remember. I think it was bread. Anyway, yep. but for, the, for me, that always just reeked as a, as a kind of plot device for them to go, ah, okay, well, they need to walk for about a month and a half, and, there's, and they're going to walk through a desert of, you know, mountain and well not a desert but you know sort of like someone that's completely deserted they're not going to be able to get food along the way well tell you what let's just put the bread in the pack and sort of like a mouthful a day keeps them healthy and keeps them able to walk yeah, it's and like superpower uh, bread right it's superpower bread yeah and in the in the movie like the hobbit's like oh i ate four for breakfast and it's like ha 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 yeah hobbits <laughs> eat a lot um but i i mean it, it it fulfills the same function of of food pills it's sort of like ah i can survive on this you know energy drink um for as long <laughs> as i need to to get through you know to have that freedom to be able to move around in the world to not be tied down to my village or not be tied down to my um uh yeah, my what is it, village, my farm, whatever happens at the beginning of a fantasy book um, or w whatever lower technology you're tied down to at a, in a science fiction book where this new technology comes up and frees you later on. Well, I think you're pointing to uh, uh, an example of the general notion that the food represents in our, in our stories an externalization of our relationship to the body at overall. Yeah. So – Right, I want to be free from the need for food. Um, I want my body to be able to go where it is otherwise not able to go. I invent this food and it lets me go there. In Alice in Wonderland, she wants to get bigger sheets from one side of the mushroom. She wants to get smaller sheets from the other. She has a way of controlling her own body by finding two different externalizations of her bodily condition and balances them to her own best interest. In The Invisible Man... Um, Wells's protagonist, Griffin, um, manages to become invisible and thinks, therefore, that he's freed himself from his body because he can go where people can't see him and he can go among them and do what he wants to them and so on. But all he has to do is eat and the food betrays him because yeah. they can see the partially digested food and he can't get away from his need for food. So he can't really get away from 
his body. He's merely unobserved when he's invisible. So again and again, we have the situation that you're describing, Luke, where that outside element in the story, the food, is a way of letting us understand our desires and fears around our bodies. Mm. Yeah, that, that I'm seeing this as a more fruitful subject. pun unintended but happened oh yeah another great one i read recently i think uh i think scott's read this as well the hunger games Mm -hmm. you read that one yeah sure um by uh susan collins um, who wrote that young adult book but it's called the hunger games for a reason um because you think like it's about all these kids being put into a into an arena and the last one out alive wins and i thought oh it's going to be like a big battle like like battle royale you know i've not read the book but i've seen the movie lots of kids fighting each other and but it isn't it's called the hunger games you know for one for many reasons in the book it's called the hunger games it's because they that one of the main things that we've got to do is just survive, is just get enough food to get through so they don't die of hunger um, throughout the book. And while I thought it was going to be very much sort of like, um, you know, teenage kid against teenage kid with knives and bows and arrows and all of that kind of stuff, it's very much about like who can, who can survive. And one of the main um, characters, Peter, in the book is a baker's son and he's really you know he's he was one of the best fed kids in the village where they come from where everyone else was really was really hungry and so then he gets into the into the arena and he sort of lays around for a while but because he's got this sort of fat reserve or whatever it is and he has this extra strength that can that can take him through whereas where other people are uh, more concerned about the the food i mean again reducing the the essence of the book down to oh, sorry i can't do puns very well um <laughs> but the uh uh, yeah, I'm sort of reducing the book, um, but um, but that is you know quite a strong element within the within the within the book of the Hunger Games. And the thing is, the whole book is just food and just food and more food, and it's all about the food and about pretty dresses, but a lot about food. <laughs> I was starving all the time reading that book. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if I may, there are different foods have different. Uh, uses and the I haven't read the Hunger Games so I, I may be off base here but it seems to me that the fact that the the best fed fellow is a baker's son is not random I mean it's not a, a dairyman's son um, the use of bread in particular and bakers as those who provide bread is one of the strongest strains within the whole notion of food imagery um, when the Hebrews leave Egypt they don't have enough time to leaven their bread and so they have the matzah which to this day is known as the bread of affliction and we say you know give us this day our daily bread and man does not live by bread alone in order to indicate the difference between the body and the spirit in uh, in Cyrano de Bergerac's Voyage to the Moon, um, which is about 1657, I guess, um, the, the Earth man who's gotten to the moon uh, explains that, in fact, you can eat. You, you don't have to eat. You can get all the uh, sustenance that you need through your nose. Uh, and the proof of this is that no one ever sees a baker eating, and yet they are always the fattest people in the village. So well, that is di- that is directly referenced from it within the Hunger Games as well. well not directly, but that in- entire you know idea there of the uh, the baker's son. Um, yeah, and yeah, 
It's exactly. Like and and what, and what I'm suggesting is that if, if we look at food imagery, we can break it down. And here is this this strain of of bread in particular, of which goes back to the oldest form of agriculture, right? Um, yeah. This strain of bread, which we can see from the Bible, you know, about let's say. 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, um, straight down to the Hunger Games, right? This, the centrality of bread in fantasy and science fiction only matches that in religion. And the communion, after all, when Jesus says, this is my body, eat of it, it's bread that, he is, that he's sharing out. Yeah, well, actually, the, the, that, uh, that idea there, for him to say, this is my body, eat of it, and then him to say, this is my blood, drink of it, is not a Jewish uh, tradition. It could, like a Jew would never have been able to say that. I mean, no, it's not just the almost, blood. Uh, yeah, no. not the blood. Uh, the, the, the body, bread, yes, but, the blood, no. The blood, no. But this is actually comes back to a, um, a ritual in Egypt with Osiris, and it was actually bread and beer. And beer, again, comes from corn. It becomes, you know, it's from the same root, not wine. Wine was, the very, it was a very Greek um, invention um, or a Greek twist on that ritual there. But even the, even the drink, the, even the blood that he's drinking comes back not to, the bre- not to bread, but to the grains behind the bread as well. And the, uh, Wonderful. Uh, yeah, so uh, lots of good stuff there. Mm, yeah. So uh, I, I, I'm going to throw this in. Um, when I was uh, thinking about you know what topics, the only thing that I could think of was pills, and and uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the animal that was designed genetically designed to want you to eat it, right? You remember in the restaurant at the end of the universe, they go into the restaurant yeah. and they sit down, and and the the animal is brought over on a tray and. And says, "Oh, I've been exercising my ribs, and they're really tasty." And and you think, "Oh, oh my God, this is horrible!" Right? He's he's saying, "No, no, please, my hindquarters are wonderful. Feel how tender." I'll just go into the kitchen now. <laughs> right? I thought, "Oh, that 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 is, you know, that solves the ethical dilemma of, uh, oh, it'd be wrong. It's wrong to eat meat, but." Uh, as I was trying to find the name of that particular animal, I noticed that um, it, it, Douglas Adams seems to be obsessed with food in all the animals that he animals and species. You know, to distinguish what they all are from each other, they're um, it's who eats who. It's who That's eats it. who, and what yeah. they what they. I mean, think think of the babel fish, right? The babel fish. You stick a little fish in your ear. What does it eat? It eats your brain waves, right? And it poops out uh, a translation to someone else with a babel fish. And that's like, oh yeah, that's interesting. But all of, the, all of the animals and all of the species, all of the intelligent species, they all have some description is what they eat, right? We understand <laughs> uh, a culture, if we understand that they eat, then they're real. But you know, I, I'm Sorry, the, the professor in me keeps rising to this occasion. I'm, I apologize if it's if it hey, takes you did edit you... the book about it. <laughs> I did, um, but again, I keep looking at the details. You know, it's the babel fish is not the babel worm or the the earwig. You know, things that are other animals that might get into your ear. It's a fish, mm-hmm. and we know what the fish represents. We see it on bumper stickers all the time, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the fish represents Jesus, and Jesus is supposed to redeem us from our original sin. And a sign of our original sin is the pride of Nimrod that brings about the condition of Babel, 
where we can't understand each other's language. Mm. So yeah. the, the Babelfish now enters into us. We hear this word, and indeed, it takes us. It takes it. It 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 consumes us, but in so doing, produces just what we want: the ability to be reunited with the larger community, and that's in part what food sharing is always about. And by the way, the the fish is a symbol for the soul long before Christianity, right? And it's a natural symbol. You just throw your net into this vast expanse of ocean and pull it up and suddenly you find life there. So it's the Pythagoreans are all about the fish as well, <laughs> even before Jesus. Yeah. Yes. I think you're taking it a bit too far. I think you just picked a fish because a fish is a funny thing in, in quite a simple form. No, I just think, you know, I'm just thinking from that I wouldn't have taken the fish all the way back there. Of course, the idea of the, the, you know, the Babel and, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's uh, a, a clever thing. But I don't think the fish, he was trying to reference Jesus or, or spirituality with that. I just think it's, it's an easier thing to, to, to visualize a little fish in the ear than a worm or a, or a bug well. or anything. So I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to smack that professor. Professor Smack down there. I'm not taking. <laughs> you may that. well be right, Luke. That that. I that think that's Adam, just a story and a and a, and a visual and an easier visual reference key. Well, to it. you may well be right that that's what he had in mind consciously. But I cannot help but believe that when he had Babel in mind, when he wrote the word Babel, he did understand that it wasn't with two B's in the middle. It wasn't the sound a baby makes. He was making reference to a Bible yeah, it's, story. Because it's not Babel, it's Babel, yeah. Babel, yeah. Exactly. Well, it's actually strange. If you, if, you read the, if you read just before the story of the, of, um, uh, the Tower of Babel in, uh, there in Genesis, um, he it, it actually says, um, it goes, oh, and, and then the sons of um, you know, Noah and stuff like that, and they went off and they all went over there according to their, to their, you know, their race and their... Um, culture and their language or something and these other people went over there according to their language and these people went over there according to their language and these people and then the next thing it goes it's sort of like oh and now we're going to learn about how different people got too many all these different languages and it's really strange how um even literally in the verse before the start of the um the the story of the tower of babel it actually says oh and then they were split up apart from you know they they had different languages even before the the story of the tower of babel so um even the people, you know, the compilers of the Bible were taking these different myths together, and that was just one, uh, just one myth. There was with the with the Babel uh, Tower of Babel story, and then there was either there's other narratives where people being split apart by um, according to their language already, even before that in the Bible, which is very no, strange. Sure. So. Although when you say before that, that's well, got to do with the order in which the pieces of paper were put together no the point is is that there's two uh, two contradictory stories there and one of them is talking about the tower of babel splitting apart by language and the other one was just sort of nat naturally there was a language difference and people would you know congregate together in that way i guess if you want to do some apologetics you could say that they were uh, they're telling the same story but one of them is leaving out the story of the tower of babel and the other one is including you know, I, it but yeah, it's a bit strange I, I, i'm simply i mean this is just a, a common feature of Genesis, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, of course. We, we get we get the creation myth twice. Yeah, and of course. The, the the details don't entirely accord. Um, so well, we've they're, got they're written several two different scribes. Of, yeah, yeah, right. Different different uh, story traditions there from different tribes or different kingdoms right. as a, as they were. But yeah, I mean, and that, and that's what you get with the uh, with 
with the the whole idea of the you know with the with the fall of man and eating of the fruit and stuff like that there's different interpretations of actually what's going on there um sure. with even within even within genesis and the Cain of Abel Cain and Abel too uh, but anyway. i would i would argue to you by the way i i, I will argue that um okay. I never suggested that Douglas Adams was consciously trying to suggest a connection between Jesus and the Babel fish. No, I don't understand uh, that. What I am saying, though, is that it's not a stretch to recognize the cultural ubiquity of certain things, and they come up as we are in the process of talking and certainly in the process of creating art. The way we were talking before we began taping about the the correspondence between food and sexuality, and once you make that metaphorically, uh, it's hard to get beyond it. You know, so mm-hmm. you know you it, all you have to do is is have sex in the background and suddenly eat honey, uh, sup, delicious, um, suck. All of these words that could have been used for food are suddenly thought of as being carnal, not elementary. That, the, the, last week we talked about a new uh, urban romance book called Eat, Pray, Love, with Prey was P-R-E-Y. <laughs> it joins the two together, right? Oh, there was a movie called Eat, Pray, Love, wasn't Yeah, there? but it was oh, P-R-A-Y, right? Yeah, but it was based on a, it was based on a book, I guess. Right, so uh, the title of this, of this urban romance book was, mm. was you know, so let me throw out a question to you guys. Why do you think it might be that we say man does not live by bread alone, but we worry about eating forbidden fruit? Mm. Why is it we don't say man does not live by fruit alone, but we're worried about eating forbidden bread? Well, because it, one is safe and one is uh, bland, and yeah, bread is bread is safe and, and bland. That's the point. It's it's the it's the staple. It's, that's all it is, and, and fruit is exotic and could be poisonous. Mm. That's all it is. Well, so, well, fruit is fruit is is basic. You don't have to process it, right? Whereas that's, bread is is something wholly created by humans. That's what I was thinking. Is that bread is um, refined and created by human hands and bread is technology and fruit is na- nature that think- sounds to, to me that sounds most resonant scott i would mm-hmm. think also that if you take bread bread is the end of the process that is if you take a piece of bread and plant it in the ground nothing happens bread fruit, fruit. <laughs> is the beginning of the process you take a fruit and that's exactly from what you get new life from Right, and in and in, in that story, the the tree is the tree of knowledge, isn't it? It's knowledge of good and evil, in fact. Right, right. Hmm. But there's also another tree. Um, it says later on in that chapter, um, and then God says, "Now lest they put forth their hand and also eat of the tree of life and live forever and be as one of us." Therefore, and then God cast them out of Eden. So there was a second tree. That God doesn't is not reported to have explicitly prohibited, but if you'd put those two together, if they'd eaten of the tree of life as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then they would have been gods. Hmm. Well, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just the tree of procreation, and that's what the, that's the first one that they ate from. Um, Absolutely. So for for the the uh, the gods, you know, all seventy two of them or however many of those meant to be um, at that time. 
um, they they were okay with with humans either living forever or having sex and procreating. But the two of them together, no, can't have that. Exactly. And that was that was the big thing that they were worried about. If if Adam lived forever, no problem. If Eve lived forever, no problem at all. But you know, living forever and procreating that was that was the reason why they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden um, because there was no way that you could allow that. And that is something that's explored so much in science fiction as well. The idea of you know uh, could have had both if there was a rubber tree in that garden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, that's a great pun. Come on. Oh man. Oh man. But I'm just saying that's that's low that's referenced so much in, in science fiction as well, the whole um the whole sort of like immortality plus procreation um equals disaster. You know, it's uh, and you know, not enough food in the world and things like that. There's a, a, you know, that's there's so much of these sort of like world spanning cities. Isn't that the thing with um uh, what's what's the what's the one in the in the foundation series as well the the found what's the city at the Trantor. center of the foundation what Trantor Trantor, Trantor. Trantor. That was it. I was thinking Trantor but then I was thinking oh I'm going to say that and that's going to be a, a, a Star Wars planet or something like that and I'd have <laughs> looked like a complete a, idiot or a sand or something. <laughs> no but the yeah. central the central scene that people reference repeatedly in Star Wars is the cantina where people yeah. of all different or I should say beings of all different races come uh, together to get drunk exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly yeah. like that but, glass of water. But what I'm saying about with Trantor as well, it's like a, uh, it's just it's a it's a city that covers the entire world, and all food has to be imported. There's no agriculture on that on that city on that city world at all. Um, everything has to be brought in, and that's really the thing that triggers the uh, the collapse in at the beginning of Foundation. Well. That's the one thing that they're worried about triggering the collapse in in foundation, isn't it? That the uh, that you know one day without food imports is gonna is gonna bring the whole thing to its knees, and that's pretty much what happens, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Um, but as okay, I was on. thinking about, sorry, no, come well, on. As I as I was thinking about uh, what might be some uh, some fun things to discuss with today's topic. Uh, it seemed to me that you know we'd have to talk about artificial pills and we'd have to talk about uh, mm-hmm. about i mean about food pills and artificial food and but one that occurred to me that maybe doesn't come straight straight to mind is Sam Parkhill in the chapter called the off season in the Martian Chronicles um remember that in that chapter we find the crassest of all the earthmen wanting to be able to set up what he says will be the best hot dog stand on Mars. <laughs> and that when everybody comes you know, racing to Mars because they need a better environment, he'll be there. And he says, send me your huddled, your tired, you know, he sort of parodies Emma Lazarus's poem on the Statue of Liberty. And what he wants to have is a hot dog stand. And I started thinking, and of course, those of you, you know, you remember the book that, the Martians give him the land because they know full well that no one's going to come and Sam Parkhill is not going to be able to uh, fulfill his, his crass capitalist dream. But what he's after is selling hot dogs. He's looking to sell the most processed kind of meat possible. It's as far from communion as you could get. It goes right back to the jungle, you know, to Upton Sinclair where any crap at all can be in there. And then you look at this absolutely 
feckless individual, Sam Parkhill, and you realize he's trying to sell a phallic symbol, which nobody is going to ever want. And so the, the nature of the food, the form of the food, the, the, the uselessness of the food becomes a complete critique of the capitalist system that has sent people to Mars. Um, and it's the food. It's, it's all happens through the food. I mean, he's not setting up a falafel stand, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's not setting up an ice cream stand. Mm-hmm. But, well, but I think, uh, I mean, I, I just see that more as, as the, uh, the hot dog is more of the symbol of America. Yeah. And like you say, there's some of your huddled masses and stuff like that. Is is for me? It's not it, the the food is just a, a symbol of the of the country. That is the is the national food of America, in a way. <laughs> yeah, and, the hot dog. And, you know, yet, the foot long hot dog. That you ne- you don't get them outside of America. You know, you go along to baseball, which is the the most important sport. You know, the most almost the most American sport you can get, and it's all hot dogs all the time. You know. Well, down, I, I took a walk down um, Broadway uh, from the top of Manhattan to the bottom of Manhattan and ate like three hot dogs along the way, I think, because there's just hot dog stands all the way down. It's sort of like, <laughs> it, it is America. That's all all the way down. Hot mm. dog stands all the way down. Hot dog stands. <laughs> yes, <right>. but <laughs> again, you have to add, for, first of all, as you are probably aware, um, in terms of the volume of food sold, that's not true. The hot dog is a symbol for America because it's a symbol for America. It's not because it's the most eaten food. It's not even the most eaten form of beef. No. Hamburgers way outsell hot dogs, and they way outsold hot dogs when this story was written. The fact that the hot dog is a symbol of America is not simply because Americans are constantly eating hot dogs. No, I'm not saying they were. I'm saying it is the symbol of America. That's Exactly. And so what I'm saying is why is it the symbol for America? What kind of food is it? It is further removed from its original source. It's, I mean, when you eat a hamburger, at least you can see that it's meat. Mm. When, you know, when you eat a hot dog, God knows what's in there. Well, maybe God doesn't know what's in there. <laughs> It's mm, the, the uh, one step further forward is like paste when you get meat paste <laughs> and you're like, it's the, it's the two most vague names in, 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 in food. It's sort of meat. What kind of meat? Paste. What is paste? Nobody knows what paste is because that's what exactly. it is. It's, and yeah, we, meat paste. We have a drive-in here in town and they've just come up with something new. It's a hamburger with a hot dog on it. <laughs> 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 Can you imagine? Well, I can. It's called the Starship of Enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Hey, one of the things that I was thinking about as um, this podcast was getting closer is what about man as food? Um, Mm. Things like... um, Damon Knight. Yeah, To Serve Man by Damon Knight. Oh, Um, you've spoiled it. (laughs) 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 Yep, I've served it. Or I've spoiled it. (laughs) Served it. Um you know, is is there something to that? You know, there's a heck of a lot of stories. You know, you got monsters chasing people around and and all that stuff. I mean, um, you know, you talk about all the sacrifice and things that we've spoken about. Is there anything more to it than the fear of death? Because well, um, being food seems to be one of the more horrifying ways to die um, in fiction. Of course, you know, is if you end up on as somebody's food, that's pretty horrifying. Reminds me of the alien. You remember in Alien mm-hmm. <laughs> movie, yeah. Alien. That you're you're not only food. You're also uh, you're also sex, right? Your food and sex, mm-hmm. yeah. because um, they they implant their eggs in you, and 
and uh, eat you, eat you, and then implant eggs in you. I think there are a lot of different uses of of humans as food, Scott. Um, mm-hmm. John Huntington, in a book called The Logic of Fantasy, uh, which is about H.G. Wells, uh, that is Wells's writing, says that Wells uses cannibalism as a way of creating a boundary between what is and isn't human. So if, for example, in the War of the Worlds, um, the Martians want to feed on us, that, that is not viewed as cannibalism, suggests that we don't, ha- don't have a common humanity with the Martians. But in the time machine, when the Morlocks feed on the Eloi, we understand that both of those races are degenerate evolutions of Homo sapiens and that we see the Morlocks feeding on the Eloi as cannibalism is a way of reminding us that they still are within the same domain, that they are, in fact, both human. So, Oh, that's interesting because hmm. by the end of the book in The Time Machine, he goes even further forward in time to, hit the, to the humans or even like the descendants of the, the Eloi and the Morlocks have become rabbit creatures. And doesn't one of them eat? No, one no, of them no. No, at the end, uh, when he gets to 30 million, uh, Luke, there's this big flapping thing and this no, no, but before thing that, before that, it was, it, before that, there was another, there was another part which is actually, was actually taken out. It was in the original serial, but then when it was made in, like when it was released as a novel, it was taken out because it was seen as too horrific because it showed that humans have devolved even further. They're not, they're sort of like these small rabbit-like creatures now, and, and like almost completely lost the humanity. But then it's only so horrific because we realise uh, actually they are still the descendants of humans and they're still eating each other even 20 million years. And then, yes, I do know, know what you mean, that the classic end of the book where he goes 30, 30 million years right. and there's just a, there's just a, uh, uh, I always th- thought I it was some kind of Isn't that Galapagos, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's novel, where people have evolved into, into like beached animals, uh, like, like seals with small brains. No, it's War of the Worlds. No, oh. not War of the Worlds. A uh, time machine. Sorry. Maybe, maybe uh, that's where Vonnegut got it from. Uh, this, this, this idea. Uh, anyway, you you had asked what what does it mean to eat and uh, other humans, and I'm just suggesting that. And and I think your point, Luke, about humans as rabbits still being horrifying because we see them as humans, their consumption being horrifying, is, is to reinforce John's point, John Huntington's point that that. If we yeah, see it as cannibalism, it means, yes, they're still part of our group. If we don't, we don't. In, uh, in The Genocides uh, by Tom Dish, aliens come down and uh, they don't even want to eat us. They just want to exterminate us because we are the vermin. They're going to use the earth as a farm. And so, you know. What it, book's that, sorry? The Genocides by Tom Dish. Oh, I don't know it. Um, it's, a, it's a good and, and somewhat horrifying novel. Um, but you know, these aliens come down, and it turns out we are powerless against them. Our, our human viewpoint characters wind up trying to live underground in order to escape being cleaned out so that uh, the aliens can make Earth into a farm. Yeah, that so reminds they don't me even, of... Uh, they don't even want to eat us. Yeah, the we screw have no fly, value. The Screwfly Solution by um, James Tiptree Jr. or Rakuna Sheldon. Um, Reminds me of that. I, I don't believe they were eating us either, but their their purpose in extermination was to run a resort or something. Uh, you know, the last line yeah. in the in the uh, story. In in Tom Di- in uh, Philip Dick's first published uh, story, 
Beyond Lies the Wub. Um, mm, my the, favorite. Okay, well, you want to tell us? Uh, sure. Um, in Philip K. Dick's first published story, not his first story, but his first published story, uh, the Wub is a pig-like creature on the planet Mars that uh, is deliberately taken on board the, the human ship that's headed to Earth, and they treat it like a pig. They, they say it's a big, fat pig, um, and it looks like a pig, but it, we, we get a lot of em- empathy with it as it's been dragged into the ship. And then, uh, just as uh, the captain's saying, you know, get your knife, let's, let's carve it up, uh, the pig says, oh, captain, can't we talk of other things? And we find out that it's a, it's a sentient being. Um, and then as, as they discuss whether or not to eat the wub, the wub says, oh, yes, well, I've heard that our meat is rather good, but wouldn't it be better to, for us to all draw straws <laughs> to see who should be eaten if you're short of food? I'd be willing to participate in that. The captain's not like, no, of course not. That's terrible. And, and yet the, the wub has a defense mechanism, which is, I won't spoil, but in the end, uh, uh, the captain gets his just desserts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. there's that when you were saying before about the in the uh, Douglas Adams uh, story as well of of an animal who's happy to be eaten, right? And that's sort of like mm-hmm. the opposite take yeah. on that. Whereas I think you know you said well maybe we could the, we get around the ethical dilemma of creating an animal that's happy to be eaten. But in the other direction, you always talk about this vat-grown meat which doesn't have a brain, so isn't happy to be eaten or isn't unhappy to be eaten because it doesn't have a brain to think about pain or anything like that. Um, uh, but I think that's what we're getting with chickens now, isn't it? We've sort of bred chickens, especially <laughs> in these factory farms, to have so little brain and to have so little, you know, anything going on there that they're just mainly meat with just a tiny bit of brain stuck on top, which is almost hardly worth considering compared to anything else. So I think what's going to happen is instead of creating meat from in vats or anything, all we're going to do is breed animals down to, to the point that the, the, any kind of suffering that they might have is completely meaningless in the same way that people will go, oh, it's okay to eat fish because they don't feel pain. We're going to have chickens soon where they're just like, oh, it's okay to eat chickens because, you know, their brain is, they can live almost without the brain. You know, you chop the head off a chicken, it can still run around for a bit. Unfortunately, with, with pigs and uh, especially, because I, I, as far as, you know, that I know or what I've read, or heard, they're actually quite intelligent, you know, almost at the same level of dogs. So eating pigs is, is, is bad, you know, and cows and all these other things. But now, maybe sheep. This is a sheep very sheep fruitful sheep. topic, right? Talking about... It's a very what, meaty what, topic. We can sink our teeth into indeed, this one. <laughs> indeed. This is, this is a huge, huge philosophical issue that is not solvable by... by uh, so, Luke, you went to the place where it's dangerous to go to, which is starting to judge what the intelligence level of the thing you're eating is. So we all agree that eating vegetables is, is fine because they have no intelligence, right? So eating fish is okay because they have no intelligence, or they have low intelligence. Most people who are vegetarian, they still eat fish, right? Only the vegan. I don't. Okay. <laughs> all right. I am a vegetarian, and right. I don't eat fish. Okay. They're uh, called pescatarians, egg? aren't they? Pes- pescatarians? Uh, People um, who eat fish, but not other things. What about not other animals? What about eggs? Personally, I do. I'll eat. I'll eat chicken eggs because you don't have to kill yeah. the chicken to get it. But I won't eat caviar because you have to kill the fish to get it. Ah. You and Theodore Sturgeon. <laughs> well, I don't. Was, no, so <laughs> that was Luke. That was a joke just for Luke. <laughs> okay. So, um, 
so eating eating eggs is is um, not eating an intelligent being, right? But uh, if if you've ever had a chicken, you know that chickens are not happy to give up their eggs, right? So you are hurting a, an intelligent animal, right? You're just yeah, but I mean, I mean more than that animal. You know, I'm worth more than a chicken. I, uh, yes, but uh, are all the chickens you eat worth more than you? No, I'm worth more <laughs> than all the chickens I eat. <laughs> That's what I'm asking. Yes, I agree with you, Luke. Even though I don't eat chickens. Yeah, I mean, I I am totally down with um, the whole idea of people being vegetarian. I was just chatting to someone the other day, and it's sort of like in a hundred years' time, looking back at me now, um, people in history will be going, "Oh yeah, Luke was pretty good." You know, he was on the right side of this issue and right side of that issue. I think, yeah, or the left side, whatever you want, you know. But the correct side of all these different issues, you know, I'm against this. I'm against that or you know i disagree with this and things um and there's a few things which i probably am on the wrong side of and i know that one of them will definitely be eating of meat they'll be like you know the whole thing you know all these uh, um science fiction books there's the one by peter f hamilton and uh, i think i mentioned this when we were talking about doing this podcast and it's um called fallen dragon and he go this guy goes down and he's hanging out with someone and it, you know food has hardly been mentioned in this book at all and then she was going oh i thought we'd get on well because you came down here and you hang out with me and me and my grandparents and we were you know on the farm here and you ate meat with me and, and he's like wait 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 what's that he said you ate meat with me it's like i ate meat and he's like vomiting and that's the end of the relationship because he didn't realize that what they were eating wasn't you know vat grown meat it was actually meat meat proper meat um but that you know but that that whole thing about in the future we're not going to be killing animals for food we are going to have vat grown food I, I reckon i'm on the wrong side of it now but in society as we have now there's no way around for me not eating meat and i do believe that any well, you, any amount of chickens is worth less than me uh, right, i'm but not you, i'm not you, sure of the same thing about you know cows and stuff but then but again you eat less, less of each too. cow there's danger there too because if you if you say it's wrong to eat meat um uh, so i i'm interested no i don't think it's i don't think it's wrong to eat meat now but in the, <laughs> no I'm, be, I'm just saying it's not wrong it, to have it, slaves now it will be wrong in 200 years <laughs> no i i'm that's that's well i'm not saying that i want to be completely um you know relativist on this kind of thing because i don't you know when it comes to human suffering that's a di i do think it's a different thing than animal suffering um because as soon as we as soon as we start uh, you know looking at animal suffering then we've got to say that okay we're we're slowly pulling pushing ourselves to be better than the animals to be as 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 unnatural as possible and I think being unnatural as possible, uh, away from all animals as possible, is actually what makes us human. So it's this weird kind of paradox that the thing that makes us more human is to be as unnatural as possible. And the things that make animals more animalistic it is the fact that they are hey, that more is like an other interesting. Do you understand my point here? Yes, yes. I so do. the fact that animals kill other animals and don't have any uh, qualms about it, you know, it's just because it's the, it's the natural cycle for them. That's what makes them animals and that's what makes them less than us. And the fact that we don't want to kill other animals actually makes us less natural. So it's a, it's a continuing journey that the fact that we are concerned about eating animals actually makes us less natural and less animal and then more human and better than animals so the more that we're concerned about eating animals the higher above them we are which then makes eating them less of a problem because we're higher above them but you know it'll, get to, By that it'll, logic. Get the, it'll get to the point where we're so high above animals that we will be more as concerned for them as 
you know, children and things like that, and we'd never even consider abusing them. And I think that's what we're going to get to in the in the future, but we're not there yet. So it's I a, think it's there's complex, another way of looking at it. It's this. a complex way of looking at it, but I'm just saying that uh, it, it's one that I can use to justify me eating. <laughs> well, if if this is is useful to you, Luke, I think that's that's fine. Uh, and it's more I of a thought experiment than an actual I, sort I don't of philosophy. It does seem to me that there are other ways of looking at it. Um, when I look at animals, I I see that in fact most animals don't practice cannibalism. There are some that do, but most animals... I never said anything, I never said anything about cannibalism. I understand that. But when you yeah. say that animals eat other animals, in fact, most animals don't eat other animals. Um, most animals li- live on vegetable material. By far, there are many fewer animals that eat other animals. Um, I mean, if you're talking about vertebrates, yes. Vertebrates, there are, many, there are as many vertebrates who eat... Um, uh, other animals as not, but um, most animals, you know, are just eating plant life. Uh, but that's not the point, I think, about what it means that we should do. We are social animals. Um, Max Luti points out that in a fairy, t- in a true oral fairy tale, no one ever says "I love you." They give them food, and that's the key sign of the mother. And a witch. Instead of giving you food, wants makes to eat you food. <laughs> exactly, makes you into food. So the question is, what choices do we make? Could we, could we eat or not? Now, if you talk about what's natural, um, it certainly is natural in one sense for males to try to spread their seed as far as possible. And yet we, most of us who are married, choose monogamy. Right? We could, in fact, do something else. It might be natural, but it is also natural in the sense that Homo sapiens is a social species to try to have a set of rules that makes that society function well. And it seems to me that one could as easily look at the question of meat eating as one looks at the question of spreading one's seed, look at that metaphor, widely by just saying, yes, I could eat meat. In fact, Luke, you've given a perfectly reasonable justification. I can think of many others as well, including my dentition, which obviously shows me that I was designed to eat meat. (laughs) Mm. But I can choose not to, just the way I can choose to remain monogamous. And that doesn't make me unnatural. It makes me part of a community. Well, no, I I totally see that. That makes you unnatural, which makes you more human. But right. your, your it's not natural about being, uh, being a social creature. That's how cows manage to survive. It's even how lions manage to survive. We are social creatures, and we mediate our sociality by many things, including the stories we tell each other, which is why we put these things into our stories. Yeah, no, I totally see what you mean. But my point is that the, 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 the fact that we have a choice to eat meat or not is what sets us apart from... Everything like the the entire rest of the, the the animal kingdom. There's no other animal which has a choice about eating meat or not. Do, how do we know? How do you know that? What do you mean? Because <laughs> there isn't any. Uh, okay, maybe there's. A we don't have any situation. newspaper stories of of, of cows. Yeah. Mm, I was okay, going but, to eat you, but, but I when, decided against it. 
No, I'm, t- I'm talking about, like, say, what's the next most intelligent animal? Dolphins, you know, and they have their way of eating, and they have many different ways. I mean, that's actually what sets apart different, you know, pods, or I think it's pods of dolphin, or schools of dolphin, you know, in different social groups by the different ways that they eat food, that, that the way they catch and eat food. There's this one kind of dolphin, uh, or this one pod of dolphin, which actually sort of sweeps fish up out of the side of a riverbank, and then as the fish are flapping around on the side of the riverbank, it's also like swept itself out the side of a riverbank and then it eats the fish but the point is it's never going to go ah I'm going to only choose to eat you know I'm I'm going to choose not to eat that kind of fish because it looks a bit like more like me and I'm going to eat this kind of fish because it looks less like me well I I don't know maybe Maybe I don't know that the answer like that. makes a difference, Luke, but I still ask, how do you know that? You know what they do eat, but you don't know their motives behind what they don't eat. How do you okay. know they're not just all making the same choice all the time? What do you mean they're not all making the same choice all the time? Well, you've said the dolphins have this particular way of eating, but maybe no, the they dolphins... No, they have many different ways of catching their food, and they have many different ways of catching their fish. But, I understand uh, that. But, but my if, point is that example, they, that's, that's, if, example, that's an outlier. Dolphin, if dolphins are not eating octopus, for example, and I don't know whether they do or they don't, but I know they cohabit in the Mediterranean. If the dolphins are not eating octopus, how do you know that they're not doing it by choice? You say only humans have a choice. How do you know that these animals aren't choosing not to eat octopus? Well, that's what I'm saying. Dolphins are the next, it would be the next test case to talk about choice in food. That's what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is if they don't eat octopus, how do you know that they are not doing it by choice? It's too easy. In that case, in that case, um, I totally agree with you that the, the dolphins are a, an animal who do um, can recognize themselves in the mirror, do display choice, do display consciousness, do display um, more signs of intelligence in that way. And that's why I think if anyone wants to kill and eat a dolphin, it's totally unconscionable. It's, it's completely out of line. That's what I'm saying. That that they start having choice is what you know is what makes them more on our level. I'm saying that the as far as I know, the the, the choice of what to eat and what not to eat is a, is a, uh, is very much a specifically human characteristic, um, you know. And it becomes from you know you know the whole development of agriculture and all the society you know and all the you know culture that comes with it. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm just saying that the choice of of, of food to eat is a, is a big thing, which is a, is a is a marker for intelligence, is a marker of sentience, is a marker of empathy between other people, and that's what makes us human. The compassion. Yeah, but intelligence and compassion aren't necessarily the same thing, right? No, but I'm so, saying that it, what we eat are markers of all of these things. Uh, Dick Phil Phil Dick said that the reason he wrote Beyond Lies the Wub is that he wanted to explore the possibilities of empathy and see how far it would, it would take us. He, he is the consummate man for empathy in science fiction. because Well, uh, that's why I, I, I said about, that compassion yeah. is, you know, in, in the end of the uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the thing that sets the, uh, the replicants apart is that humans had compassion for the animals, isn't it? That's the big thing in the, or one of the plot points in the movie. It's sort of like, oh yeah, it, it, he called the, the owl it. And if he was human, he would have never called his owl it. It would have been a he or a she because he would have, you know, identified it with on a, on that kind of level rather than an it level. It would be a he or she, a personal level. 
Yeah, they have empathy for for electronic animals too. Yes, but it's like again, but that's what makes them human. That's what makes them human is that they can have empathy for a non-living organism, for robot organism. We can have empathy for cars. You know that oh, that poor old Hmm. car has been just sitting there unloved, right? Yeah, but empathy is different from compassion, and I think that's what that book is Uh, about. Is it? Yes. Isn't, Isn't compassion a part of empathy? No. Well, it's it might be an element of it, but I think the whole point of Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is that empathy is just being able to tell what other people are thinking and feeling, and compassion is more sort of like taking that, uh, taking that pain on yourself, in a way. I'm thinking maybe that might be a, a, a good book, Scott. What do you think? Yeah, do sure. Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah, that'd We've be great. We've been looking for a uh, a book to do as a read along, uh, a dick book, and uh, a novel. So that might be the one. I, I've read I read it years ago, so I I'd probably be up for it again. Okay, okay. sounds good. Um, let's let's talk about Technology. This is the website that. But <laughs> what I was what I'm concerned with Technology, as I mentioned before we began, is that. Uh, you know, just saying that something exists is not the same thing as having a prediction. Um, it's easy enough to say there will be robots that never do anything wrong. We'll give them positronic brains. Um, that's not a prediction. That's fantasy. It's right? a storytelling just, device, that's all. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but if you take a look at stuff, I mean, here, for example, um, I'm looking at the technology uh, site for food and science fiction that you sent us, uh, the link for uh, Chicken Little, Vat-Grown Protein, 1952. And then you look down at the bottom and it says Vat-Grown Meat, No Animals Harmed, William Gibson, 1984. Well, you know, neither of them, after all, invented either of those things. Um, they already existed from the time that the first bread maker decided to keep his yeast culture alive because it made a particularly tasty kind of bread. And that goes back long before we have science fiction. So to say that science fiction is inventing the idea of keeping something alive indefinitely so that we can eat it really represents, I think, uh, an overly inclusive notion of what constitutes invention in science fiction. Yeah, so so as I heard you talk about on a CBC Spark podcast, you were saying science fiction doesn't invent technologies. It 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 might uh, rationally, ex, you know, uh, pre- not predict. It might mention something that will be vaguely similar to something that we come to see later, right? So I, I go into uh, the 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 local Best Buy and I see nothing but visi screens and vid screens, right? Right. <laughs> Giant vid or visi plates as they're called. Yeah, in, but uh, it's Sony who invented that technology or whoever, you know, I'm just saying Sony yeah. off the top of my head. It was, you know, no no science fiction author is going to c- claim the invention of a flat panel TV screen or a projection TV screen, but uh, uh, well, we we had we had uh, you know, movie theaters at the time those novels were being written and that was a flat paneled screen right so it's not it's not like a wild wild prediction you were saying in that podcast you were saying there's only one one thing you had found that actually is in a science fiction story and it's even got a diagram and what was it radar or something right yeah gernsback has an actual rate diagram of radar and an explanation for how it would work um well i've invented things in in, oh sorry karen well, in Ralph 124C41+, which was serialized in 
and published in book form in 1912. Um, and that's like 22 years before the first patent for radar. Yeah. But I'm just saying that I do think there's many more than that, but it's uh, it's a bit tricky because I can't... I mean, there's some things that I've mentioned in my own science fiction um, novels, which I pretty much have, as far as I know, invented and come up myself and explained the, the, the concept behind it. And if someone made it, it would be one of those things where it's like, yeah, great, well, that was one of my inventions. I didn't make it. <laughs> Well, no, it's I'm like just, saying so. We've one day warp drive will will be no. No, I'm saying that if, no, if, if you read if you read my if you read my novel Minding Tomorrow, one of the one of the uh, uh, plot points and one of the inventions that they talk about is a new kind of um, uh, elevator, a new kind of lift which moves people out, which will enable um, taller skyscrapers, and that's something that I came up with myself. I've talked to many. Um, architects about it and no none of them have seen it before and there's lots of different things you know and, and there's other things that i you know have invented and could easily put into a science fiction book i haven't because i, I had sort of like long-term plans for that invention within the within the science fiction like world that i was creating there because it's mentioned again in the second book quite a bit um but yeah I, i'm just saying that that i'm sure there are more than just this one this one example um there because I can't be the second person ever to actually come up with an invention. I mean, it might never be made, but there's, you know, it, that's the thing. It's like, I'm sure there's, there must be more than just one, one ever invention. I do think this technology, not technology, is uh, flawed almost to the point of being useless. Um, but uh, I, I think there's a middle ground there. Well, I think what it's, what it's really lacking is a, sort of a clearer wiki, wiki mentality. Because uh, if if you see something that is fixable, you can't uh, you know instantly go in there and fix it. I, I think you have to be a member or something. Which it, it, you know maybe maybe it's just it needs more promotion. I, I think all, all all the criticisms that that could be leveled at technology have have been leveled at Wikipedia, and I find Wikipedia to be endlessly useful, endlessly yeah. useful. Well, as technology, a, I, I don't find it useful at all. I can just click on something and it goes, oh, this kind of technology was mentioned in this book here. And I'm like, well done. Thanks for making that list. That's why, exactly right. It's a useful list. It is a useful list. I mean, when you take a look, for instance, at automated restaurant, um, you know, the notion of automated restaurant, whether or not you think of that as an invention, whether or not you think of that, <clears throat> or can, if you, whether or not you can find uh, something in nonfiction that antedates uh, the the reference given on technology, it reminds you that if you're thinking about food, it's not simply a matter of eating; it's mm-hmm. a matter of production, consumption, delivery systems, social networking, um, ritual. I mean, you take a look at at their list and you begin to see a set of things that at least the makers of technology have focused on and they have focused on it seems the artificiality involved and the taste involved but there are other options and so technology is a good starting point in that regard whether or not you take their their particulars uh, one that you mentioned early uh, Jesse is Wells is the food of the gods mm-hmm. and one of the things that I like in that uh, book. I've read it years ago, so if I've mistaken this, please correct me. But my my sense about this is that my recollection is that the scientists who make this 
this food that will allow everyone to be bigger and stronger and smarter um, are rejected by ordinary humans who they call the little people mm-hmm. um, because the little people don't want their world upset by everybody changing their capabilities. And so the, the scientists lob canisters of this food over the walls of the city so that those folks can, in fact, have the food and those who want it can eat it even if the government of the little people don't want it. And so the government of the little people takes the scientists to court under the Geneva Accords, arguing that this is chemical warfare, mm-hmm. that, because it is a poison that they're sending in. So whether something is a food or something is a poison, Wells is very interestingly, I think, suggesting depends not simply on whether or not it kills an individual, but whether or not it changes the relationship the individual has to his society. That food has functions beyond just sustaining our bodies. And that, I think, is something that science fiction does do well. It asks us to understand the social consequences of the things that are invented. In that regard, it, to me, is very important to read the science fiction, not simply to say, ah, yes, science fiction predicted it before, uh, well, what's his name, um, Bur- before George Birdseye figured out how to flash freeze food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, pr- hey, hey, guess what? I just looked up a Food of the Gods um, on Wikipedia, and I'd forgotten this. I've read the book, but I'd forgotten that one of the scientists is called Redwood, and I think that's a great name <laughs> for, for uh, a food which makes people grow bigger and stronger than everything. Anything else? So I hadn't noticed it. I hadn't noticed that before. Very nice. Um, well, that's a good ending. Yeah, that'll work. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> oh, no, I was interrupting Jesse. I wanted to hear what Jesse said. Then. What did I say? Well, you were starting something before I interrupted you, but it was going to be a little interruption, and then you could have carried on. doesn't matter, though. I don't, I don't recall. <laughs> uh, how about this? How about this as an ender? Uh, we talked a lot about food. What about drink? Oh, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> no, I don't think it is. Uh, I always wondered what a pan-galactic gargle blaster would be like. <laughs> a tiny little sip of it rather than a, you know, a good gargle. But... Um, I, I, I've got to say, uh, coffee's got to be the food of the gods for me. <laughs> I, I will say, I would like to add one, one I, probably for me, it should be my final thought to the, for this podcast. Um, I have enjoyed this conversation, and I have enjoyed previous conversations that you have managed. And I have to say that sitting here in my study, never having physically been in the presence of any of you three gentlemen, um, it's not just that I would like to be able to shake your hands. It's that I would like to be able to sit down and share a meal with you sometime. And that's something our futuristic technology has not yet allowed me. Soon. One day soon. <laughs> you, want, you want to be able to someone cook a dinner somewhere and then just pass it across. Like, in, but instead of sending a, f- a file via Skype, you want to send meal via Skype. You know, <laughs> instead of, so, do you want to receive this file? And the file is a, a dish. <laughs> That's what we need. That's what we Indeed. need. Yep. Indeed. Yeah. Awesome. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.